Hello, welcome back to the Masonic Roundtable, a weekly program where Masons from around the world get together to talk about Masonic news and opinions in a friendly and social manner. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed here are solely the opinions of the participants and do not represent any Grand Lodge uh, statements or positions. Make sure you keep your conversations open for the public and on the level. Uh, as always, to interact with us, join us live on Thursday nights, 9.30 Eastern. Uh, love seeing you in Facebook land, YouTube land. Uh, just the chats are amazing. Um, and um, Or if you can't watch us live, ch- check the cat chat replays or go listen to us on your favorite podcast app. There's many ways you can uh, join in this conversation. And let's see, uh, you know me, my name is John Rework. I'm a past master of the Patriot Lodge number 1957 in Fairfax, Virginia. Next up for his introduction, we have the one, the only Jason Richards. Hello, Jason. Hello. 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 Not at all. Not at all. The one and only like, you know, how many Jason Richards there are in the world. It really is a common name. They're like a dozen in my like company alone anyway i'm jason richards past master vacation lodge number 16 clifton virginia the year 2017 and a member of lodges in dc and ohio yay excellent all right some of the other guys are running late but that gets us right to our special guest of the evening that's brother scott sherman hey brother scott how are you i'm wonderful john excellent to be with you guys again Awesome. Long time since episode 40. Yeah, so that's what it was. The last time we got together was uh, we talked about uh, the Academic Lodge schema and, and uh, you know, you're over there with uh, what's Boston, Boston University Lodge. or That's correct. Yeah, so that's great to have you back. Oh, looks Thank like jo- Joe Martinez just popped in. Hey, Joe, how's it going? Hello, Baruch Hashem. How's everybody doing? <laughs> Fantastic. Yes, Joe Martinez. Whatever, my name's there or not, don't care. Sorry, I'm in uh, mobile location. I'm in the lodge office today because uh, we had a thing. There's my name, Joe Martinez, uh, current master, Manassa Lodge 182. Just went to go visit uh, another roundtable member's former or current lodge. And uh, yeah, great to be here tonight. I, I haven't demitted. I'm sorry, yes, I, I didn't see you there, so the brain... <laughs> I'm, I, I drove like I about just don't go very years. often. <laughs> to make it here on time so may yes. as well may as well just admit i i attend your lodge more than uh more than i attend my my own Dude, mother lodge everyone enjoys seeing you so better be seen than viewed at your lodge yes that is correct <sighs> all right so uh before we get into tonight's topic def- definitely want to give a shout out to all the patrons you guys rock my socks um, we appreciate everything you guys do to support the show. If you want to continue that, head over to patreon.com slash the Masonic Roundtable. We do appreciate that. And that keeps us going for many years to come. Here we are on, geez, like was, was February of 2013 or 2014 when we started. So holy smokes, we're up on a big anniversary. Man, what's that, nine years? Nine years. Nine years. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? We've had a lot of children since then. That's weird. All right. Um, I mean, Let's, you have. Well, yes. Well, you had a, you've had a child in the in the time frame, but not Robert did too. Yes, that's true. All right. Let's John, get in. Wasn't that 2012? Close. 2013. Yes. Well, because BU Lodge got rechartered June 2012, and that's when you had me in there for that episode. That's right. right. Holy smokes. Well, no. Oh, 20, um, 2014. We started in 2014, was, so not, not too long after that. Mm-hmm. I didn't think yeah, you were already retired Scott, when you had me on. You must have been. Yeah, Scott, I didn't become a Master Mason until March of 2012. Gotcha. And we wouldn't have had Jason on before that. <laughs> no. Uh, all right. Let's switch over to the Tarot Card of the Week. Jason's got his deck. What deck do you have here tonight? All right. So this is my new absolute favorite deck. It's not for everybody, but this is the Transient Light Tarot by Ari Weisner, who is an artist out of the UK. And um, Ari, who um, identifies as, as queer in the LGBT community, has taken special care to abstract away a good bit of the gender in 
in the major arcana of the decks, focusing instead on on the symbolism. And so it's just a very, very pretty, pretty deck. And so right here we have the Three of Cups, or the Three of Vessels, as they are called vessels. Uh, in this deck. Ooh. Yes. Ooh. All right. So what does the Three of Cups represent, John? Let's we'll see. Three of Cups, uh, that is in the Rider weight system, the... Uh, the, like basically the three friends toasting, right? This mm -hmm. is celebration. This is friendship. This is party time. It's it's a good good news card, right? It's something that talks about uh, community, fraternity. fraternity, right? Yeah. So so whenever you whenever you see that, that's uh, that says things are are going well. There's uh, good things with your friends along the way. Now, if it's, re it's reversed, then that becomes a problem. Maybe there's some discord among amongst the friends. Maybe there's some some harsh words back and forth, or maybe uh, your team project's not going to go as well as you'd like. But maybe, maybe Joe and Jason are fighting again. Yes, but since it's an upright, we never are, fight. Things are looking good. Well, it's because there's Always. other people here tonight. When it's us two alone, um, yes. we uh, you're like, on we your like best behavior. Fun. Good, awesome. Yes. Well, cool. So there you go. Well, Take that in. Talk about tonight. What's so going on? we have Scott on. We have RJ just snuck in. I'm going to go switch over to introduce him. Hey, Robert, how's it going? Whoa. Hey, it's going great. Good to see you guys. And let me say it's been too long. Yes. Too long since I've seen Brother Scott. Agreed. Great to see you. Awesome. You too. So tonight's topic is on... Uh, Hebrew for Freemasons or Hebrew and Freemasonry. And so we, we thought, uh, this was something that I've been thinking about for a while, uh, in my own personal growth and, and study, uh, of the Bible. Like that's our, our book of sacred law. Uh, then I, I want to get more in tune with that. Uh, um, as a Freemason, I've really dove deeper into my faith. And as part of that, I really like to, uh, and this is something I know that uh, at least Joe and Jason can agree with too. I really want to get to the essence, the the root of of the of the law, right? Of of the books that we have, because there's a lot of translation errors over the many centuries. Just just in case you guys didn't know that, and, and the, they call that interpretation. Not no, no, no. <laughs> and, and so it's always good to whether you're looking at the new Testament to look at the uh, original Greek, or if you're looking at the old Testament or the Jewish Bible, right? You have the original Hebrew if possible uh, to get a more accurate representation of what um, was actually said, right? Uh, because as soon as you translate it to another language, something is going to be lost. And so I thought that was a good topic to lead into to say, well, why, why is it important that uh, Freemasons especially, kind of explore dabble into brushing up on their Hebrew, learning a little bit of Hebrew, um, how that would make them a better Freemason and what that might, what insights that might give them, uh, as a person as well. So, well, like well, much of Freemasonry source material comes from the Hebrew Bible. So that, yeah, there, or the, there's rather the, the, the old Testament, right? There's the, the kicker right there. If, if you're familiar with Masonic ritual, most of it, um, does come from uh, the Old Testament, from the from the Hebrew Bible. So uh, those stories, those moral lessons that are imparted, uh, definitely have that as the the source material that they build off of. Right? Would you agree, Brother Scott? I would. Mm -hmm. But there's also, at least in our ritual in Massachusetts, there's some Shakespeare in there. That's true. And you know, and various other things like that. Yes. When I teach uh, new Masons at our lodges of instruction. I don't often go into, you know, you, you remember this part? Do you know where this reference is mm -hmm. and, and all that? So it can lead to some very interesting discussions from those who are true seekers. Very, very well said, right? Um, it's, it's really good to know, um, to your point, like we talked to a couple weeks ago about Masonic exegesis, right? Do you really know where these words came from and where they meant, uh, what, what they mean, at least from their, their source materials? So we, we have lots of biblical references in, in the actual ritual itself as well, not just the story itself, but specific lines in the rituals as well. Mm -hmm. Very, very true. 
Uh, so, Joe, you're going to kick us off to talk a little bit about the history of the Hebrew language. Uh, yeah. Where where that came from? Yes. Well, it came from God. Well, Thank there you, you go. Thank you. Boom. God. <laughs> Thank you for coming yeah. to my TED Talk. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah. So, I was going to talk about the history of the Hebrew language um, from a historical and his historiographical uh, reference and not so much a religious uh, context, right? Um, so in general, for those who don't know, Hebrew is one of the ancient Semitic languages. And there are more than one Semitic language than Hebrew. Okay, lots of languages in that part of the world have a Semitic origin, right? So the earliest Hebrew text that people have found... Oh, yes, go ahead. So... As I hear just this first part of it, I just want to make sure that I'm painting this picture right in my head. That when you say Semitic language, and maybe you're going to get there, is that like how is that term being used? Is it like to say like a region before like we've we've redefined it, uh, what those cultures? Uh, the, those. Yeah, I am going to get to that. So yeah, All thank right. you for your question. Sorry, right, thanks, Robert. Wait yeah. your turn. I will. I will. No, your questions to so, the end of the brief. Thank you. So yeah. So <laughs> the, the way <laughs> the way languages are categorized, and I don't want to get too super nerdy into you know uh, languages itself. But to Robert's point, um, you have this region in the world called the Levant, right? And from this region, there was a primary dominant language going from the about the 30th century BCE. Um after the rise of Sumerian. Sumerian is the earliest, oldest attested language that we have written records of, right? Um, it's not the oldest alphabet, though, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, and Sumerian is a little bit weird because it was what they call a language isolate, meaning that Sumerian came, it did its own thing, it didn't branch off into other uh, languages later, uh, like the Semitic languages did, um, or Proto-Indo-European, which, you know, a lot of our modern languages come from. Um, Sumerian came, did its thing, and then kind of died and didn't really flourish at all after that, you know, with the rise of the Mesopotamians and the Babylonians and things like that. That language basically died off. Um, Semitic languages, on the other hand, they did not. They actually flourished um, and gave rise to lots of modern languages that we speak today. So let's put Sumer off to the side. You know, everybody has to bring up Sumer and cuneiform. Um, oldest writing, not the oldest alphabet. Okay. Hebrew is actually one of the oldest alphabets that scholars know to exist today. And by alphabet, we mean um, letters or pictures of letters that actually mean letters and not words or symbols or shapes or things like that. So Hebrew is one of the oldest alphabets that are out there. But so like sounds. Yes. Exactly right. Like, like a symbol that means make this sound and combine them Correct. to create. Okay. An alphabet. I'm tracking. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah kind um, of like our English okay. alphabet does for English speakers. Exactly right. And Very a lot of our you know, proto-English stuff comes from Hebrew. Um, mm -hmm. So like the first two letters, Aleph and Bet. Sounds Aleph like alphabet, bet. doesn't it? Yes. So, um, but anyway, going back to Robert's question. So you have regions, right? Um, so the Levant was the region where, you know, these, these proto languages came from. And then you have your primary languages. So Semitic would be the actual language. And then from there you have sub languages and dialects. Hebrew is a sub language from the Semitic origin language, right? Um, and then you have dialects, which is really interesting. We're going to get into that. And I definitely have questions for, for brother Scott about it, but, um, Semitic languages, especially in their written form, again, start as far back as the 30th century with Akkadian. Um, and you may have heard of Akkadian in some of our other shows where we talk about ancient cultures and things like that. Um, Akkadian took cuneiform instead of creating their own alphabet, um, whereas early Semitic languages actually created, like Robert said, uh, characters that make sounds or the, the modern alphabet. So from there, it starts to spawn in the Levant region all these other languages that shot off from the primary original uh, Semitic to include languages like, um, let's see, now we're getting into sub-languages and dialects. So you have your Canaanite sub-languages, which include Hebrew, Phoenician, Moabite, uh, Edomite, Ammonite, um, Amalekite. So those are all sub-languages of the original Canaanite tongue. Okay, so in the region of Canaan, there was these offshoots of the Sumerian language that all had their own 
um, different alphabets, different way of making sounds, but they did have a, a sort of root uh, thing. But then when, once we get into dialects, um, you break down the Canaan into different dialects. It's actually interesting. So Hebrew and Aramaic are two different dialects of the Canaanite language. Okay. And depending on who you read or, and, and Brother Scott, please feel free to chime in. Depending on who you read or whose textbook you're looking at, um, they compare the Canaanite dialects of Hebrew and Aramaic, for example, as somebody from Boston talking to somebody from North Dakota. Um, so they were the same pretty much root language, but they just had the different regional idiosyncrasies that make them a little bit different. Like, you know, we call it soda and they call it pop, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. and that could be as, as different as they were. So, um, now where it gets really interesting and, and fun is that you had your Hebrew language, which again, started at your, your proto Hebrew language started around the 30th century. Um, started to be really spoken and written throughout the second millennium and the first millennium. Um, and then it actually disappeared from culture for quite a long time. Um, so Hebrew as a spoken everyday language basically stopped after the exile into Babylon. The only time right. Hebrew was actually spoken was for worship, you know, in the synagogue or in, in the temple um, or, you know, wherever they were actually having their worship services. People did not speak Hebrew on a daily basis. They did not. It was not a language that was spoken. Um, after the Roman incursion, and, and Brother Scott, please feel free to chime in, Hebrew actually started to be picked up again as a he might, modern if you stop talking to take a breath. You know what? <laughs> You know, Brother Scott what? knows that I'm from the Northeast, too. I grew up in New York, so he's mm -hmm. used to this modern, you know, this way of talking where I don't shut up. So he's just giving mm -hmm. me time to get my... I call that a diatribe. Yes, you're a diatribe. <laughs> okay. So on that note, um, yeah, one of the last things I'll say is, and then I will be quiet and let Brother Scott talk. Um, it just really is interesting. A lot of languages disappear from, uh, you know, day-to-day -day speaking use and are gone forever, right? Extinct languages... Um, you know, people study them in school that don't get paid a lot of money and, you know, magically reconstruct them back to life. But Hebrew was one that was, that basically died out of the modern vernacular and did come back. Brother Scott, your thoughts. Thank you. But, but on that point, after, after the Romans basically wiped out that and the diaspora went out, that's when we get other dialects. For instance, most of you have heard of Yiddish which is a mixture of Hebrew and German, German, which a lot of people from Eastern Europe spoke. Most Jewish people in Eastern Europe spoke. Most of the time through in the years since, Jews were, were you know, put upon, basically, thrown out of countries here and there along the way, um, still managed to keep going in their communities and such. And we also had another dialect called Sephardic, which is what, the, which is a mixture of Spanish and Hebrew that, <laughs> that came from um, the Middle East down through Africa and, and the like um, along the way. It actually wasn't until the modern state of Israel was refounded in 1948 that uh, thanks to the effort of one man whose name I can't recall, Hebrew was reintroduced as a spoken language in the in the modern state of Israel, and it was really thanks to that person that it flourished the way it did. Brother Scott, was it pre predominantly Arabic before that? What was predominantly Ar Arabic? Oh, the spoken language in the, the uh, among of Jews. Yeah. Uh, well, there or, were you know as you, as you understand if you if you go back. Um, you know, I've always understood that Christianity is a daughter of, of Judaism and, and Islam is, uh, no, is a sibling type of thing. Um, mm -hmm. so, so Arabic is one of those Semitic languages that, that came in there too. Gotcha. But I, yeah, I think what, I think what Jason was alluding to, oh, sorry, Robert, um, when people going back to the state of Israel, um, your, your German Jews spoke Yiddish, your Jews that lived in, you know, the Moorish regions of Spain, they spoke Sephardic, you know what I mean? So, but again, it was kind of, and, and brother Scott chime in if, if I'm wrong, 
it was the same way as a Samaritan and a, and a Jew talking to each other. They would understand each other, but they, it was mm-hmm. not the same language. It was like, you know, oh, North yeah. Dakota and, and, you know, New York talking to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, right. the, the traditional Hebrew to brother Scott's point, And I found, um, who is the name? Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Mm-hmm. That, that's listed the, as guy. The, the person who brought, yeah. That's who, the guy. Who revived Hebrew as a spoken that's language. That's the guy. Nice. Robert? Robert. Robert? No, I think that was, I was just going to say, like, to re- refine that question, you know, in the time periods that Hebrew wasn't spoken, you know, what was what was the, the language? But you guys kind of covered that. So appreciate it. Well, and especially because Jews were in tight-knit communities, they still worship their God on the Sabbath, our God, really, but, you know. Um, so they, they had that understanding of Hebrew. The Torahs are written in Hebrew. Some other documents are more Aramaic, which you mentioned, but it is a close cousin. Um, I think that's a lot of what kept it going all those years in the, in the diaspora. Yeah. Well, to, to your it point, 14, and I think that 1492, we were thrown out of Spain. I, I forget the century, but we were thrown out of England at one point. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing. I, I heard it 1492, Columbus people. sailed the ocean blue. I didn't hear anything about right. throwing out the Jew. Well, and, and that was the same year that <laughs> Isabella threw all the Jews out of Spain. Really? And from my understanding, a lot of the people who crewed his ships were Jews that were fleeing from Spain. Wow. Oh, interesting. Led I learned to a, something new today. led to a certain supposition that maybe maybe Columbus was actually a proto-Jew type thing, a hidden wow. Jew. That's a whole other subject. Wow. There's some rabbit hole I'm going to go down now. Thank you for that. We, we need another episode for that because that yeah, right. sounds like that's a secret Jew. That's like a better storyline than the National Treasure series yeah. right now. It's just saying. <laughs> I will we'll get to that, that after well, this episode. Well, the concept of proto-Jews are people that, that basically went internal and kept it hidden mm-hmm. at, to a point where their descendants didn't know why they did certain things, but mm-hmm. they did them because that's what they were taught. And that's where we found the people were, were kindling uh, kiddish lights and things like that. Um, you know, it's just, it's just amazing. I I was, I have a large music collection and I picked up a disc in Boston somewhere along of the rediscovered Abu Daya people in Africa. And this was their community recording songs and they were doing it in Hebrew. And even though the accent was very different, I understood everything they were doing because it was, and it just gives me a, a big joy to when you when you can reconnect with a community that that has been gone even further, you know, from when we were all spread all over the world. So for our younger listeners, a disc is what they used to put music on before you could download it. You okay? could stream it, yeah. Your, yes. Dude, that's true. Set side, just everybody out there, look it up. There's an NPR article that talks about this. The young people today are really getting back into physical media because they grew up on yeah. streaming and being able to hold music in their hand is like, what? Anyway, check it out. Yeah. Look at, look at vinyl, the, all the vinyl that's coming back. Yeah. You know? Like, yes. Highest sales. And along the way, there. I digitized all, you know, my, th- my hundreds of CDs, but the 600 vinyl albums I have from the, from my youth. Um, it's much harder to digitize those. Can do it. So they kind of wait. It's a little bit harder. Yeah. So what, so one question I had just as far as like, you know, being a, a, a Hebrew speaker or reader or, you know, um, you know, one who, who understands correct pronunciation, does it irk you in lodge when you hear poor Hebrew being said by people who have no idea what they're doing. Does it, does it get under your skin? It, it sometimes, sometimes it does. And I've, I've been a teacher <laughs> for a long time. So, you know, more on certain podcasts where I've tried to reach out to the person on the podcast and say, let me help you. <laughs> you know? Never do 
Clemson. I can tell you how to pronounce. You told me. <laughs> That's right. There's no soft G. You've corrected me before. I, I'm, there's no shame and, in that. And I'm like, all right, cool. And that sticks with me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Know? I'm a learner. Yeah. I'd rather it. be, I'd rather get it right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John and I actually, yeah, well, before it, this episode, received a note from a concerned brother who asked <laughs> us not to have Robert speak any Hebrew on the show. All right, Robert, read this what? word. Did I sit in log no. Yes, you did. Yeah, Joe. Okay. he mentioned yes, it to did. me as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> nothing but love. All love in love jest, you, love of you. course. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So that that's so, always been basically the is. Thing there. Let me give you one example of something Please. interesting. Yeah. Uh, first half of the '90s, I was down in your area. I was doing uh, Blue Lodge in Maryland, York Right in DC, and uh, and Scottish Right in Alexandria, and. Along the way, um, they were pronouncing the word for holy, kadash, but it's That's... really pronounced kadosh. And a couple of other Jewish leaders of that era were able to convince the powers that be that that was the way to do it, and they went along with it. Oh, my God. Now, I tried the same thing in Boston, and they said, but we always do it the other way, so we're not going to change. I'm saying, okay. No. No. That's not a good It reason. is what it is. No. No. But yeah. Um, you know, the bit, one good thing to remember when you're trying to sound out a Hebrew word that is probably transliterated into English anyway is that most Hebrew words are emphasized on the last syllable. Yeah. Right. So, so that, yeah, that was one, one thing I learned early on, right? Dabbling in the, in mm-hmm. the, uh, Kabbalah. It's not Kabbalah. It's not Kabbalah. <laughs> it's Kabbalah, right? You you emphasize the yes. uh, the last syllable unless you're told otherwise uh, to mm-hmm. emphasize uh, a middle syllable, for example. Uh, but that's that is at least like one like life hack, right? For people who don't normally speak uh, Hebrew, when you're trying to pronunciate, default to mm-hmm. accenting the the uh, the last syllable. Hey, mm-hmm. speaking of. Kabbalah. I would love to get Scott's um, opinion of this. Can, can I just read you something and I'll tell you what it's from in a second? You're gonna sure. read this, be, this might be this might be kind of neat. Okay, so the symbolism of the temple. It is important to understand the symbolism of the temple, which we have singularized as Solomon's temple. A temple has two specific functions that are not attributed to a church or a cathedral. First, a temple is the residence of the Grand Architect when on earth. This residence is referred to as the Sanctum Sanctorum or Holy of Holies. Second, it is a non-existent place halfway between heaven and earth. The place is described in detail in the great work of Jewish mysticism known as the Kabbalah. The symbolism is this symbolism is most appropriate to masonry, which teaches us to build our own temple in our hearts, seeking the same perfection and same meaning as was sought in the building of Solomon's temple. Now, this actually comes from the official Master Mason guidebook of the state of Illinois. They recommend, they like refer to the Kabbalah. And I'm just curious, what are your thoughts about like an official statement like that coming from a Grand Lodge? Good, bad, and different. Well, it's surprising because masonry tends to be more conservative in a lot of places about such things. But more than that, I think I've mentioned to some of you before, when you mention the Kabbalah, it's originally from from the Zohar, from Jewish mystical sources. And the way I've always heard it explained is before you can undertake a study of the Kabbalah, which goes into the higher realms, if you will, and if you don't do it correctly, you'll probably lose your mind entirely. And those right. rules were you have to be, well, you have to be Jewish. You have to be Orthodox. You have to be at least 30 years old. You have to be married. You have to ground well you, studied, in other words. Well studied in you the Talmud. You have to Talmud. be well studied of the, mm-hmm. of the Tanakh and the Talmud. Mm-hmm. And once you've done all of that, then you have to find a teacher willing to teach you about the Kabbalah. And, you know, I, I fear that a lot of the popularization of it 
loses that. And I, and I don't know how much of the, the path that I know of is really true, but I wouldn't want to take any chances, you know, and yeah, I know a lot, but I don't, I don't, you know, I'm married and I'm older than that, but I, it doesn't seem to, I don't fit a lot of that. So my, my point is I stay away from it. Yeah. I, I mean, so that's, that is the thing too, because it, that, that system has adapt, has changed over the years as well, because mm-hmm. it has tweaked into, uh, the, uh, a Christian Kabbalistic, um, mm-hmm. system. It's, it's, it's moved into a Philemic or even a golden dawn yeah, type system it, as well. It, so it feels to me that it's been appropriated. It's been appropriated. That's a good mm-hmm. word for the, word choice. you know, yeah. uh, again, for, Right. As Brother Scott has pointed out, like the majority of Freemasonry is this kind of conservative, um, not politically aligned, I'm just saying conservative, like Christian kind of mm-hmm. wave. And then you've got something like this that resides in the background, you know, the basis of the fraternity. How can you make that more accessible? By appropriation, right? But not in a way that is like we must eradicate. Uh, and and reabsorb and redistribute. It's more of like the the typical type of appropriation that happens among cultures. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. And you know, I, though I still think there are some cool things that I've seen along the way, like meditating on the Sephirot and what they all, all the the regions mean, and how you might move from one to another, moving towards perfection. Really, what it's about. Um. It certainly, that certainly couldn't hurt anybody. Noble goals for sure. Uh, Jim. And, and what, what are we Masons about otherwise than trying to help make ourselves better? Amen to that. Joe? Better human beings ultimately. So I want to tap into Robert's question and then bring it to, to Brother Scott. So let's talk about the temple and, and the, the temple definition quote that he, he referenced coming from Illinois. I mean, our primary allegorical story is about the building of the first temple, right? Um, mm-hmm. You can get into all the other appended bodies and stuff like that, and you learn about other temples and things like that. But the, the story surrounds the building of the first temple, right? Out of the Kings and Chronicles, that's, that's, that's the story, right? So it's not – that's where all the basis of the symbolism comes from, is, right? They've, they chose that – they could have chosen any other story. They could have chosen a story about Noah which someone here loves to talk about, you know, a lot. Um, but they didn't. They chose the story of the building of Solomon's temple, right? But you said something. I mean, um, Desigulier did, yeah. but yes. Desigulier did, yes. Um, but it was probably around a little bit before him. Uh, but to, to that point, um, Robert, what you were, what you were quoting, um, I found super interesting because that is – when you're talking about the temple as the physical manifestation of God on earth, right. Or deity on earth, that was the same description given to the ark, right? So before we had the temple, we had the ark that was living in a tent for a little while. And then, you know, called the tabernacle, right. Wanted a more permanent place for that. So they um, built the temple around it, but that it served the same function, right? When the ark was in the sanctum sanctorum, it, you know, the direct presence of deity was there. It wasn't, it wasn't a symbolic thing. It was a physical thing, right? God was there right. in the sanctum sanctorum. And, and we teach that in, in our ritual as well, right? So again, this is kind of a core piece of our ritual. And it's good to actually understand, number one, where it came from, who the players were, other than just these random names. Oh, a dude named Hiram and a dude named Solomon and, and things like that. So I, I think it's a bit more you know, if you really want to be a serious student of Freemasonry, you should know where the stories come from and what they actually meant at the time they were being told. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Though when you mentioned that, so if you recall, the tabernacle came about after the exodus from Egypt while they were wandering the desert. It wasn't until they ended up in the land of what became Israel that they, and after David, you got Solomon, and, and Solomon started uh, the project to build the temple. And yes, well, from everything we've read, is once the temple was dedicated, 
it was a manifestation of God, which was represented in the Hebrew as the Shekhinah, yeah, was which be. is actually the feminine side of God. There's, there's, God has a lot of um, descriptors in the Hebrew Bible, all of them um, show on different facets. You have El and El Shaddai and various other ones like that. Elohim, and right. while I'm, I'm saying about that, I want to mention when, when uh, Joe came in, he said Baruch Hashem, which basically means blessed is God. It technically means blessed is name. Um, normally, when Jews greet each other, we would say, use the all-purpose word of Shalom, which means both hello and goodbye, as well as peace, which kind of fits into all of it. Um, sometimes when we're leaving, we don't say Shalom, we say Lahit Ra'ut, which basically means I'll see you later. Mm. Now, another, another fun, fascinating thing about uh, dabbling in Hebrew is when you actually go look at, like, the the puns that are in like say genesis and some of the early books of the bible right because uh when you start studying it you find out that that hebrew is very punny that they they try to have uh in the stories a lot of words that sound alike to emphasize certain things um just the, the least of which i can think off the top of my head is uh like adama is for uh Hebrew word for earth, right? But Adam, mm -hmm. right? It was created from earth, right? The first man, right? So mm -hmm. they, they sound alike, but they're also meant to be representative of each other that, that God created man from the earth, right? And from, and, mm -hmm. and hence to earth, you know, he will go afterwards, right? So there's this, there was a reason why they sounded alike, but when you translate it to English, right? It's Adam and earth and, there's no um, alliteration that that helps to mm -hmm. to to join those words together. So, um, but once you start learning the original Hebrew in many of these stories, you find that there's there are deliberate connections to to these words, which actually make it stronger. Right? That actually tells a different side of the story, like an inside joke <laughs> that you wouldn't get if you read it just from a pure English translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's, that's very true. And that's why Robert turned me on to, um, uh, Robert Alter's version, his translation of at least, uh, the, the Tanakh and, uh, and then go, went down that path, but he did a really good job of, Translating the English, but but giving the original Hebrew the the proper duty to say this this is what's really being said, you know, behind the scenes uh, of, yeah. of the translation. The the Pentateuch is the book I think I originally picked up, and that was because uh, some of y'all know Brother George Haynes uh, had actually uh, been the one to suggest that book to me, and then once I got it. Uh, yeah, there it is. Uh, mm -hmm. Really was foundational in allowing me to better understand uh, the stories that were being told. Even in, you know, just reading like you'd open up your Bible and read Genesis um, to read mm -hmm. uh, the the context, which. You know, growing up, you'd hear people say all the time, super smart people, context is everything. And you're like, whatever, right? You're just part of this herd huh. and you're just going through school. You're not really listening to any of that story. And then when you go, oh, wait a minute, context, fancy word for the background, like you get the whole, the real story. There's an entirely different thing going on than what is you know, uh, typically believed because you're implying that, you know, modern day usage on words. Um, and so it was so fascinating. And, it, and the story becomes like, honestly, you go from like plain language to, to something that seems practical to a realm of like mythic proportions. Like it just all of a sudden becomes magical. <laughs> It's, it's really incredible. And I think Agreed. that's, that's, I'm that's familiar a good with Alter's work, mm -hmm. but I would, but I would was going to suggest the Tanakh from the Jewish publication society, Ooh. which uses the original Masoretic texts and they're side by side. And 
in the notes below, it gives you some of that subtext and context, which is absolutely true. Well, I was, I was actually so going to try that. Alter's a good work. Yeah. I love Alter. I get in trouble when I actually quote Alter in school papers, um, which is funny. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was actually going to ask uh, Brother Scott, um, and I totally just had a brain fart because um, we were talking about Robert Alter. Oh, um, what especially a lot of i'd say a lot of freemasons i think where where some of the issue lies is as we're talking about you know translations of of the tanakh are 100% of what we've ever seen unless we actually open up a tanakh that came from original jewish sources you've never seen it before because all we've ever seen as christians and as other denominations that use the the holy bible quote unquote as as a symbol and read it Mm -hmm. is all coming from the Septuagint, right? So it was Greek translations mm -hmm. of Hebrew documents. So right. most Christians have never seen an Old Testament that came from the original Masoretic texts, right? Um, or mm -hmm. texts that predate the Greek Septuagint, right? It was all done by Greek scholars who mm -hmm. sat down with Hebrew people that spoke Hebrew, you know, and you know the legend, magically, you know, it's called the Septuagint because there were 72 of them and they magically all translated the documents exactly the same verbatim. Um, and that's why you have the Septuagint. But what we've seen- in, Where you know, have like, I heard uh, something like that before? <laughs> I don't know. But- um, Early Christian, you know, but again, we've, scripture. Not, <laughs> we've never seen it. We've seen the Greek versions of the Hebrew Bible. Masonic tradition informs us. <laughs> well, let me tell you one quick example about how they differ. Okay. Ten yes. Commandments. Okay. In the original, it's thou shalt not murder. Right. In the Christian side, it's thou shalt not kill. Big difference. Kill. But it really does. On the Jewish side, you know, we understood if you look, read the Bible that there are times when certain conflicts are justified. Right. And unfortunately, people die. But you know, if beyond you, good and evil, if you if you they do like I want to I want to kill somebody because they wronged me in some way or whatever you do it. There are methods for that, and if you take it on yourself, that's worse in our view. Whereas if you look at the Christian side, it says, "Thou shalt not kill." That means that every war is unjustified. There's no no sort of killing that ever should happen. If yeah, and, and that's that's the danger. Of not knowing what they believe is Christian. Bingo. That's you know? exactly the danger of of trusting a translation without understanding the source. That's like the mm -hmm. perfect example yes. right. yes. of, of of taking it from the the literal, the external, you know, the exoteric level without actually getting mm -hmm. to the the root source. So that's that's a, a great great example. Mm -hmm. And one of one of my favorite things about commentaries like Alters, the Hebrew Bible, um, just to throw him back out there as an example, one of my favorite parts of commentaries is in the notes section where the person editing and and kind of doing the the historical assessment of the text starts talking about where the scholars disagree on the actual meaning of the text. And mm -hmm. so it, it brings more to light on, well, you know, depending on the source, you know, it's, it's so easy for, for some folks to be like, well, it's in the Bible. That's just the way it is. Like, no, we have fragments of historical sources that may or may not be inspired, but disagree on the interpretation and inclusion. And right. that's, that's always... Well, the puzzle piece of history always was fascinating to me. Right. Another way you can you can look at that too about disagreements is read the Talmud. Rabbi A says this, Rabbi B says you're full of it type of thing. <laughs> yeah, they don't agree. Either, so. <laughs> so we just had the, the holiday of Hanukkah. There were two major schools back then in the Talmud, Shammai and Hillel. Mm -hmm. And for Hanukkah, Shammai's people said you should start with all eight candles and go down one till you get down to one. Mm. Hillel's people said, no, we should start with one and increase every night because the light will be increasing in that dark time. 
And as happened many times, the Hillel side won out, and that's what we still follow today. So were you talking about Chanukah? Not Hanukkah, because <laughs> it's it's clearly got a C whenever I see it written down somewhere, right? It's it's Chanukah. Yeah, right? I know it's crazy. Well, because, well that, that's another one. I, I teach people about this. The word Hanukkah is, has the the word Chet, Nun, Kof are the three Hebrew letters, mm-hmm. which basically means this in the English. That's why I always spell it C H A N U K A H. Mm-hmm. But there are others who start it with an H because a lot of people find gutturals hard. Right. I used to teach little kids how to how to pronounce Hebrew, mm-hmm. and they imagine somebody, you know, you, you're you're choking on something. You go yeah, or it tastes terrible. You say yeah, and you get that. There you go. And that's how you do the the chets and things like that. Um, so that so that's your second tip, anyway, right? So you talked oh, about. But anyway, the other way to spell it, you'll see H A N U K K A H, and there's mm-hmm. no reason for the K K, and the H is just because they didn't want to put C H because people don't know how to do gutturals, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing, is right? It's it's not Hanukkah, mm-hmm. it's it's not Chanukah, it's Hanukkah, Hanukkah. Uh, so whenever you see a well C H trans well transliterated. Done. Uh, say it, Robert. Robert, say it. Right. Say it. <laughs> Hanukkah. Yes. There, there are a lot good, of Robert. gutturals in. There are a lot of gutturals in German. Yeah. So learning German yes, as yeah, a kid, as well as all the Semitic languages. Yeah. I got. Joe was teaching I got one us about Brother earlier. Scott. Brother Scott, I got one for you. Bringing it back to Freemasonry. Sure. Um, love your take on this. So. One of the most important parts of our ritual happens when, uh, during each of the degrees, you know, the candidate goes from darkness to light, shall we say? And he hears a rendition of something out of the volume of sacred law. Um, normally it's Genesis 1. Um, very first sentence in the Bible or in, um, you know, the Tanakh. Now, you, you mentioned the JPS versions of the Tanakh. The very first Genesis 1-1 is a little bit different than what we read in the King James Bible and, and all the other things. And it actually changes the context of that whole moment. Um, so I would love your thoughts on that. No, I, I think it reads beautifully. It's a little different, but, you know, as opposed to... Uh, Geez, what is it? When? In the beginning. Yeah. Well, I'd have to look at it again, but oh, I, yeah. I, I mean, know what you're referring to, Joe. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Genesis 1-1, right? It's when you open up the King James Bible, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you open up right. the Tanakh with, from the JPS. That's in the beginning, when God began to create. Right. When God began to yeah. create, then something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big difference there, yeah. Huge yeah. difference. A little difference. We don't use that. Though so, so speaking of it, it's interesting. When we were talking about King Solomon's Temple, uh, last night we had a meeting of St. Andrew's Royal Arch Chapter in Boston, which is the oldest Royal Arch Chapter west of uh, in the Western Hemisphere, founded in 1769. And our uh, our early, early members included Paul Revere. Um, yeah. But at any rate, we were doing the most excellent master degree last night, part of the Royal Arch chapter. And that carries on from the Blue Lodge. It talks about the completion and dedication of the temple. And in that part, it refers to somebody named Josephus who proclaimed the beauty of the newly consecrated Temple of Solomon. Um, about some time ago when I was high priest of that chapter, I was in a bookstore in Brookline and found a book called The Collected Works of Josephus. And looking through that, I actually found the exact same words that we have in our ritual from this person from from that time frame. Really? It got collected, written down somewhere. You know, blowing your mind type of thing. That's but, pretty cool. Um, yeah. Very so, cool. yeah. So, there's there's... Uh, we do talk about the building of King Solomon's temple and, mm-hmm. and where it comes. And 
in those next two bodies of the of the York right, the, the chapter and council, mm-hmm. we get in a lot more about how that got to be. Right. So speaking of King Solomon's Temple, how would you pronounce uh, the uh, the two pillars outside of King Solomon's Temple in the original Hebrew? Oh well, I'm an American. I learned it that way. I mean, it's it's you know, I'm not going to say it out loud, but mm-hmm. you know, is it pronounced yeah. with a hard J or a or a soft yod? Well, well, again, in lodge we would do it that way. If I was reading it in the Hebrew Bible about there, it would be a, a, a soft J. Right? Mm-hmm. Would that? No. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, this this Josephus, going back to the the previous aside. Um, mm-hmm. is this the same Josephus who was the historian around the time of Christ? No? Yep. Joe shaking mm-hmm. his head. One of the same, right? Yeah. The uh, his Jewish historian. Oh, he, I think he ended up being a citizen of Rome. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. So the it, same. It that's, a nice yeah. that's a nice way of putting it. Okay. Scott? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. Became um, a citizen of Rome. <laughs> yeah. He, so he, he went native, I believe, is what the way I read it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so in the interest of time, too, we're starting to get to the end here. Um, if someone wanted to just learn more about, you know, pronunciation or uh, where to kind of get started in in brushing up on, on learning some Hebrew, where, where would be some good resources to have them start at? Just off the top of your well, head. Well, people can always contact me. Scott I'm Sherman. happy to help. Yes. Yeah, yeah always happy to help. Um, otherwise, many of the books we've talked about and things like that, um, mm-hmm. there's intro to, intro to Hebrew things you can take around, which would yeah. teach you more about the the rules of the grammar and the pronunciations and things like that for everything but mm-hmm. depends upon how far you want to go with it right yeah exactly I mean, I mean, like do it like duolingo i know has biblical hebrew as well but it's it's more mm-hmm. uh you, you learn it more by by hearing rather than than interacting with it and learning how to spell it and everything right. I, i've also seen right. some really good uh the for people who know like the great courses uh, I know there's a couple of good like int- intro to uh, biblical Hebrew mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I do want to give a shout out to one guy I've been following on Twitter for a while. Uh, there's a brother, Elihu Parker, who actually has the Eliyahu. Eliyahu. Thank you. <laughs> Parker mm-hmm. Hebrew for Masons. Uh, look him up on Twitter. He has a, a, a YouTube channel as well. And he, he does a good service trying to, uh, uh, make us a little bit more conversational than we are today. So, I uh, want to give uh-huh. him a, a special shout out. So yeah, so there's lots of resources. Uh, many of them are free to get started. Just to to brush up and try to be a little bit more uh, in tune with the source material because that's what really what this this uh, topic's been all about today. Uh, so right. with with that, I'm going to start wrapping things up. I'm going to head over to uh, let's see Jason for final thoughts and uh, why should we care about Hebrew as Freemasons. No final question, or was I, that, that the that final is question? that is the final question? I gave it to you as <laughs> okay. I cut Here. over to you. Catch okay. up, fine. Wake up. Get Why up. We... Put on a little makeup. <laughs> Why'd you leave the keys up on the table? Because I wanted to. Anyway, yes. There you go, creating another fable. Um, oh man, showing our age there. Anyway, um, why should you, as a Mason? be a student of Hebrew. As I mentioned from the get-go, Masonic ritual is so heavily steeped in um, literature that was originally written in Hebrew. And so the more you can understand the context behind the ritual, both the inclusion at the outset of, um, you know, the fraternal, you know, creation of Freemasonry around the, you know, early 1700s to, you know, the actual source material itself and the context behind that, I think 
gives you much better insights into why this organization exists and, mm -hmm. and how to better yourself as a part of it. Agreed. All right. I appreciate that. Robert, same question. Why do you, why do you think Mason should be familiar with Hebrew? Well, I think it's important just from the standpoint that it is exactly the foundation, like the origins of our foundational allegory, our foundational story that the entire degree system is, is, you know, wrapped up in is, is right there. So, <laughs> um, that just that being said, like it would be silly, I suppose to, um, I don't know how to say this. Like maybe, maybe it's not a great idea to watch the last three Star Wars movies without knowing something. No, I'm just kidding. It's just, it's important <laughs> on the foundational basis. I think it helps you to understand the culture. Um, and for those higher thinkers, um, it provides a lifelong study that is pretty enriching. Um, and, and I think somebody who's done an incredible job in that, uh, like Joe, uh, studying the languages is, uh, I said at the start of this, Joe, when you were doing your uh, intro to the uh, origins of Hebrew, those questions, I, I wasn't stopping for the audience. I was stopping for me. <laughs> I find this stuff really fascinating. And so I want to thank you guys for, for sharing that light, yeah. especially you, Scott, and taking the time to come out and, and, and add uh, even more context and, and flavor to this. So thank you. Great. All right. I know Joe, uh, do you agree with everything Robert just said? I, I, it is like it, it is like it came out of my own mouth, just <laughs> through Robert's face because I love going after him. But yeah, no, <laughs> Brother Scott, <laughs> it's always a pleasure to see you. It's been too long since it's been in person. Um, I look forward to seeing you again in person very soon. Um, but I will say, kind of, sort of, what Robert said. Um, I think it's important because our allegory is so framed in this particular story using these particular characters. And we're talking about um, a language and a people that have existed for, for thousands of years. Um, and, and, you know, I'll give you some little tidbits uh, from the Babylonian Talmud. Um, so there's certain parts in there that say that Hebrew was the language of the angels and Hebrew was the language that the angels spoke. And some ancient rabbis even believe that Hebrew was the language originally spoken by Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden. Um, and some others will even write and say that all of humanity spoke Hebrew until the Tower of Babel was built when God, you know, created all the different languages and changed everybody's tongues because they were doing stuff they weren't supposed to. So, you know, we're talking about a people and a culture and an entire ritual system built around um, this people in this language. And I think to have that context, as Robert was talking about, is super important. Otherwise, it's it's no different than you know reading a story out of a comic book or um, you know a magazine or something like that. It has no meat, it has no bones, and it, it doesn't mean anything after a while. So the more context and the more you learn about it, the more it'll enrich your your life and the way you live it. So yeah, that's all I got. Peace. I agree. Yeah, brother Scott, uh, back to you. What well do you believe is the the reason why? Mason should be at least familiar with the original Hebrew. Well, it kind of goes even beyond that. Why do we talk about studying the seven liberal arts and sciences? It goes towards the whole process of building our internal temples and making us better people. Um, there's just so much richness in it. And I think about when you talk about how the uh, ritual came about, I truly believe that those brothers in the 16th century had a pretty good classical education and pulled from sources they knew in crafting the work that we are all doing 300 years later which mm -hmm. is pretty astounding to me i agree um i really enjoyed my time here you know i love you guys and and was really happy when john contacted me about coming on um one thing i always teach in the first degree is read the book of ruth 
It's pretty eye-opening. Nice. And it's only four chapters. Awesome. Hey, well, thanks, thanks, Brother Scott, for coming on. Uh, you truly are an asset Freemason. Really, you know, you're ready to celebrate your 42nd year as a Freemason, and that's Congrats. that's a huge accomplishment. So, uh, so Mazel Tov. Woo! Uh, let's Thank see you. the Marvel. Um, the, the the last thing I'll add to to the great conversation we had is for me uh, it's actually enhanced my spiritual journey right to go and 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 learn and study you know some of the original uh, language to to get a different perspective on what I grew up with and so uh, to me that's been very uh, enlightening it's been very uh, informative and, and I'm really glad that I've 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 dabbled you know I'm no, nowhere near even conversational not that you would say an expert but the things I've learned along the way have been, have been uh, very beneficial to my journey and that's again that's why we're all here so if you've enjoyed this I want to thank you all very much for watching thank you searching for more light have a good night Wow.